This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Hannah Petard, author of four novels, Listen to Me, The Fates Will Find Their Way, Reunion, and Visible Empire. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Oxford American, and McSweeney's, among others. She directs the MFA program in creative writing at University of Kentucky. Petard's most recent novel, Visible Empire, tells the fictionalized story of a 1962 crash of a chartered plane in France that was carrying more than 100 of Atlanta's most prominent citizens. The group was in Paris on a cultural mission raising money for the arts, among other purposes. The novel focuses on the aftermath of the crash in the city of Atlanta and how families and individuals and the African-American and white cultures deal with the accident. We began the interview with Petard discussing her interest in this event and the desire to fictionalize it. The story of this crash and of the way that it transformed Atlanta is one that I've heard since I was a little girl. Um, It's where the expression trust fund hippies uh, comes from in, in, with regard to my origin story. Um, uh, My mother used to talk about the trust fund hippies of Atlanta and this phrase really stayed with me um, in part, I think because of, you know, childhood jealousies of wanting to be um, a quote unquote trust fund hippie. And it wasn't until I got older that I understood that trust fund hippie and access to this kind of money it came with great loss and an incredible burden and all of this grief. Um, so part of it was my own evolution of understanding of this event and um, of of how horrific it was. Uh, my mother is terrified of flying as a result of this crash. I am terrified of flying as a result of my mother's fear of flying. And so I'm also... I've always been interested and more and more recently, I think the older I get, I'm very interested in transgenerational trauma, you know, the, the fears and the traumas that we pass down from, from one parent to another. I'm really interested in the fact that, you know, I'm 39 and I don't have children and I'll never have children. Uh, What is it about the way that I was raised that made me absolutely sure that I didn't want to be a mother is that is part of it not wanting to pass down my own traumas. So a lot of it, I think, is very personal, even though I didn't experience the crash, I wasn't alive for it. But because it loomed so large in Atlanta, in in general, and then for my mother and my father in particular, it ended up looming large for me. So it's just been it's been a story in the background that I've been I've been waiting to be ready to write. I can see that it definitely brought up a lot of of issues for you and things to think about that is is great fodder for literature. Tell me a little bit about the the actual crash. Sure. So in 1962, uh, a group of more than 100 of Atlanta's wealthiest art patrons, uh, culture makers, taste makers, went on a three-week tour of Europe, seeing the, the sites, seeing culture, seeing art, um, it was definitely a, a sort of moneymaker tour. There was fundraising going on, and they were the movers and shakers of Atlanta. Uh, and on the return flight home, it was a chartered flight, Air, Air France flight 007. 
the the plane started its initial takeoff uh and some by some eyewitness accounts it left the ground for six inches for others it left the ground by six feet um but whatever happened the plane crashed on takeoff and all but two french flight attendants died and so the majority of the people on the plane 121 were from atlanta and they had huge um you know roots there and so the city really changed overnight and in reality you know that that morph took probably 10 or 20 years but um for the sake of art and storytelling um i condense what what i'm looking at into a single summer a transformative single summer in atlanta so the book begins with the crash and and it's really more about the aftermath than it is about the crash itself how did you select your characters i would say you had maybe five or six primary characters and then you know the world of characters around these people and you change chapters between perspectives throughout the book so a couple of the characters presented themselves pretty quickly um one of them is Piedmont Dobbs who is a 19-year-old African American the year before the crash 1961 when Atlanta was desegregating its public school system 132 African American juniors applied to be 10 who would be chosen to integrate and when i was doing the research i came across that number 132 African Americans and 10 being chosen and I thought, my very first thought was, what must it have been like to be one of the students who wasn't chosen? Um, what an amazing defeat, personal defeat to have at such a young age, to, to have that ambition to, to be one of these game changers and then to not be chosen. And, and that was the beginning of Piedmont Dobbs for me. Um, I, I wanted to have a character who for whom the crash wasn't the most important thing, who had no connection to the crash. Um, and so that's where Piedmont came from. And another character is Robert Tucker, who's a 42-year-old newspaper man. And honestly, Robert was useful because it was necessary to have a character who had more access to information than most characters would, access to information about the crash. And so, at the beginning, Robert was just a way for me to incorporate uh, some of the historical data that I wanted to use in the book, but have it incorporated in a in a more natural and artistic way. Um, but but Robert ultimately became so much more than that. In many ways, I think he's you know he's he's the anchor of the book. Um, one of one of four four or five or six anchors, but it begins with him and the perspective of the crash begins with him. Uh, but ultimately, I think it was Mayor Ivan Allen, who, who is a real person um, and a character who, who I've appropriated from history for the sake of the book. But it was ultimately I Ivan Allen and his fictitious wife in the novel that, that allowed me to get most of the historical data in that I wanted to get into this, to this novel. Um, and then from there, the other characters, Anastasia Rivers, um, Robert Tucker's wife, Lily, they they came out of necessity. They came out of research. Uh, they came out of a nagging kind of voice 
from a perspective that I hadn't yet been telling in the story. Um, it, I, I'm a very instinctive writer. Um, this is the first book that I've done so much research for. And what was gratifying about doing that research was even when I didn't feel like writing or compelled to write, or if I felt like I was blocked from writing, I could go do research and it felt like I was making progress. But what was also exciting about the research was having so many ideas and so many sources for ideas that I've never used before or relied on before for my material or my inspiration. Aside from the mayor, the other people, they were just sort of based on the fact that there were issues you wanted to explore. So, for instance, with Piedmont being one of the African-American young students who didn't make it, you were sort of looking at how did him not making it into this prestigious educational program then impact his life and how did he intersect with the victims of this crash? Piedmont is very much an individual and he's an individual um, through through which I'm also looking at so so on the day of the crash, the the four of four of the characters early in the book uh, get kind of origin story chapters, what they were doing on the day of the crash. Um, one of them is Piedmont Dobbs. And what he's doing on the day of the crash is working as a janitor at an all-white establishment and an all-white bar. And on the day of the crash, he's watching a dozen or so white men at a bar watching a grainy black and white television and the footage of the wreck in Paris. So he's watching them watch this news. And this is about 12 months after he's had his devastating uh, rejection from integrating the public school system. It's about 12 months after he's walked out of his mother's house. Um, He's quit school. He's quit his family. He's living alone. And he's watching these white men watch the news. And his very first thought when he hears the numbers and he, he hears about all of these wealthy white Atlantans who have died, his very first thought is the city had it coming. And so what I wanted to do with Piedmont over the course of the book was explore what it means for an individual to have an instinctive response to somebody else's tragedy that you then might spend the rest of your life regretting that instinct? What does it mean to have an instinct that you don't like? What does it mean to have a thought that you know is morally or ethically opposed to how you were raised or the person that you want to be? And, and so with him, I'm, I'm exploring that. It's, it's a question that I ask myself often when I have, when my first thought about something is an ungenerous thought. Um, what does it mean that that, that was my, my instinct versus what I wish had had been my initial reaction. Um, but he, he is also certainly a way to look at some issues that I find troubling then in, in Atlanta's history and that I find troubling now um, in America's relationship with race. So Piedmont, you know, Piedmont allowed a lot of exploration for me as a person and as a writer um, you know, one of one of the epigraphs at the beginning of the book comes from Malcolm X, who basically refers to the crash in Paris as the work of God. And then he calls on God to to do it again. And I don't think that you can encounter a quote like that 
and not try to explore um, a different perspective in in a book that purports to be not simply about you know one or two characters in Atlanta, but about a city itself, about Atlanta. What do you think that Malcolm X meant? His quote is in the epigraph says, many people have been asking, well, what are you going to do? And since we know that the man is tracking us down day by day to try and find out what we are going to do, so we'll have some excuse to put us behind his bars, we call on our God. He gets rid of 120 of them in one whoop. And we hope that every day another plane falls out of the sky. I think he's mad, and and rightfully so. Um, I think he's really angry about the history of legalized racism. I think that he's angry that, in the same way that Piedmont Dobbs is angry, um, I think that he's angry that it takes 121 white people dying in Paris for the world to pay attention to the city of Atlanta and not uh, the not the history of legalized racism or the murder of black young men, black boys on a near daily basis in the South. Um, I think he's angry. And, and so it had that, you know, that, that had to be there at the beginning of the book. And I very deliberately juxtapose it next to Ivan Allen's quote, which comes before it on the page. And he says, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase because I don't have the book right in front of me, but it's, it's basically Atlanta has suffered her greatest tragedy and loss. And I want readers to encounter that because I want them to have a moment of, you know, feeling this gravity for, for Ivan Allen. But then I want them also to have the rug pulled out from underneath of them in the next line when we encounter Malcolm X's perspective. No, this is not Atlanta's greatest tragedy and loss. It is a tragedy. It is a loss. But Atlanta's greatest tragedy is its uh, history and treatment of African-Americans. And there's not one black person on the plane. No. No. So because this crash happens in 1962, we are in the heart of some significant race issues that are going on in Atlanta. And the title for your book, which is called Visible Empire, is sort of a play on something else in the book. So you have your main character, Robert, and he was married to a woman named Lily, who he's separated from right after the crash. But he was thinking back to a time when he was at her godfather's house. And he saw, I don't know if it was like an invitation or a card, but it said... It's a membership card. Okay, it's a membership card. And it said on top, Invisible Empire, Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. And so he was just starting to absorb the fact that his wife's godfather was part of this Ku Klux Klan. So can you talk about this card and, and then your sort of reversal of the, the those words to create the title? The full name of the KKK is the Invisible Empire of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. And my interpretation, my understanding of that moniker is to do with invisibility and power. It's a group, it's an organization that gets their power from its invisibility, from the fear that its invisibility causes. Not knowing if your neighbor is a member of the KKK means he might be a member of the KKK. And and so there's this spread and this strength that that 
organization has from its very invisibility. And when I was working on this book, I started wondering about the question of our responsibility of visible power, of things that we can see, but that are so ingrained in our way of thinking that we don't question them or we're too scared to question them. And so, you know, 121 white people dying, that's a very visible event. It was something that people chose to see. And what appealed to me about the title of Visible Empire was the questions that it could engender. Uh, You know, I think good literature invites readers to ask good questions. And I'm hoping that with that title, with this book, uh, it could, good questions might be asked about what our roles, what our roles are in society today about complicity, about what we allow to continue happening, uh, what, what we know is wrong, but what we're just so accustomed to that we don't stop it. These are all questions that I'm asking myself all the time. You know, I don't, I don't purport to have answers. I have opinions about a lot of things, but with the book, I'm hoping, I'm hoping to start some good conversations. And I think, I think that, I think the title is provocative enough uh, that it might start some good conversations. Well, I think, too, as you, as we're reading about the aftermath of this crash, what you've created with these characters and really with this society is this sense of vulnerability. This, you know, you got the impression reading this that these people had very pretty solid lives and were sort of going on this path of happiness and maybe ignorance. And all of a sudden this this crash happens and, and all these weaknesses are opened up in in all of these characters that you're looking at and and that their vulnerabilities can rub up against each other in the way that they maybe need each other or use each other. An example of this could be there's a character named Jeannie, and she grew up fairly wealthy and has a really nice house, and she ends up sort of picking up this stray girl, young woman, who she believes or is told at least that this young woman's godparents died in the crash and and Anastasia comes to live with Jeannie and it's kind of all under false pretenses but they're both sort of using each other at the point where they own they both have their vulnerabilities and I'm wondering if you could talk about that idea. Well it was important that you know part of part of the exercise of this book was to explore ways in which different members and different types of members of a community can or can't come back together, renegotiate their lives, figure out a way to become a community again in the wake of a catastrophe. And so there are, there are some really, I think, hopeful reunifications that occur in the book. Um, and there are some unlikely friendships that occur in the book that come out of this great loss and this tragedy. But it it felt naive to me to not also explore the ways in which people, individuals, human beings can use the aftermath of a crisis when people are feeling so vulnerable, as you say, um, that they use those opportunities to um, take advantage of someone or to propel themselves further in their career or in their circumstance. And so 
I, I thought that it would be interesting for me to spend a little bit of time with these two people and their women, which was also interesting, who are manipulating and playing off of each other's weaknesses and vulnerabilities. They both think that they have the, you know, the power in the relationship. Uh, they both think that they know more than the other one in the relationship. And, um, you know, part of following their storyline is to find out which one truly is naive and which one isn't. Um, but, but the young woman that you're talking about, Anastasia Rivers, the stray, uh, she came, her, her character came from, in many ways, um, my fascination with these people who we've heard about in the wake of 9-11 who claimed to be in the towers and weren't, um, those, those people really have mesmerized me. Um, this, this desire to say that you have been near a catastrophe, involved in a catastrophe, have some connection to a catastrophe where there absolutely is none. And so I wanted with Anastasia to explore that desire in a person to to claim connection to something terrible where no connection at all exists. Um, and then I, I put her next to an older woman who is lonely, um, with, who, who has a lot of money and who's used to getting her way. And, you know, I, I watched what happened. Yeah, I think that's an interesting phenomenon of, of sort of feeling left out. It's, it's, it's like, Every everybody in your city is mourning, and you're not because you're not related to any of that. So, how can you sort of adopt that lie, adopt that persona, so you feel a sense of belonging? Exactly. I mean, my this this isn't something I'm proud of uh, at all. But you know, when when nine eleven happened, the first thing I did was call friends from high school who I knew were living in New York and. I hadn't stayed in touch with them. I didn't, you know, I wasn't close to them, but I, I felt the need to be connected. And I don't know if it was, I don't know if it was, um, I think it was feeling left out in some way, the wanting to be close to this, this serious disaster. On the one hand, there was something I'm sure instinctively generous of wanting to make sure that these people were okay. But I also think when I'm very honest with myself, I think that there was something um, needy in it too, something self-serving of of wanting to have a connection without actually having been affected myself, just being completely candid. And so with Anastasia, I was certainly trying to look into that aspect of, of my own early 20-something self as well. It's interesting too, the way that tragedy might push you to the edge or make you rethink your life in a way that we don't. And the thing that's interesting to me is like death is imminent. It's it's going to come. And I think sometimes the best way to live is to have that on your mind all the time so you can maybe make the best decisions for your life every day. But of course, we forget about that. So you have this main character, Robert, who is um, he's a reporter and he is in love with another young reporter and where he works and she goes on this trip and she's on the plane and he sort of talked her into going cause he's married and she dies and it definitely threw his life for a loop. He, 
he was wanting to end things anyway and his wife was pregnant and but then she dies and it switches everything in his mind in his relationship with his wife and he we see her him leaving her first of all i really appreciate i'm i'm the same way and it it's it's something that i i learned you know halfway through my life but i try to go about every single day as well with the knowledge that it's going to end at some point and to to try to really make decisions based on now and based on what's good for me today. And I try really hard not to look backwards in an unproductive manner. I mean, I think that life is special because it is short um, and because we get this one chance at it. But yeah, Robert, uh, you know, he, he gets the news that his mistress has died. And instead of, um, instead of starting over and using this terrible loss as a means by which to become closer to his wife, to become a better person, a more honest person. He, he uses it as an excuse to basically disconnect and um, indulge in all of his worst instincts. Um, and obviously he can only do that for so long, but I think that there are people who, you know, they, they come across that life changing decision or that life changing incident um, and they make the wrong choice. You know, not we, we cannot all make the righteous and the good and the beneficial choice in part because there's there's just no way of knowing. But um, it was really important for me to have one character who has this kind of opportunity where he can go the right way or the wrong way. And he very, very deliberately goes the wrong way for, for as long as he can. And then there's his wife, Lily, who who's a pretty important character in the book who she's been raised um, with great privilege. She's been doted on all her life. I think instinctively she's a good person, but she's been living in the South with blinders on. And on the day of the crash, she loses both her parents and her husband because her husband leaves her. And she's left with, you know, a seven month old baby in her belly um, but the real news for her comes a few weeks later when she finds out that her parents have left her destitute, that they've been lying to her for, for years and years and years, and they've been spending their trust funds and they've been spending her trust fund so that she not only loses her parents ultimately, but she also loses any understanding of who her parents were. She, she, she feels completely unmoored because the people that she thinks she's lost aren't the people that she knew. And so add to that, her husband who's left her, and she refers to that as like a mere drip in the bucket after everything else. Um, but she she becomes a, a really interesting look at um, a character who ultimately uses all of this bad news, all of this bad fortune to become, to try to become a better person. You know, she tries to choose a more um, hopeful and, and good path, I think. She probably has one of the biggest character arcs in the book, I think, in terms of where she started and where she ended and her own softening and, you know, her choice not to necessarily be angry at her parents and the farce that they created or be angry at her husband who left her and eventually wants her back, but to just see that life is kind of messy. And I think a big stimulation for all of that change was actually Piedmont, this young black boy 
through random circumstances of helping out Robert with the car, he ends up, after having been beaten up by the police, at her house. And she takes him in. And they have this unlikely friendship that really softens her and allows her, I think, to understand that love isn't isn't exclusive to just two people like her and her husband. And, and it opens her mind, I believe. I think that's right. And what Piedmont does for Lily, um, I think, is multi, multifold. He, he takes, uh, you know, if, if African-Americans have simply been an idea for her, he makes them an individual. He, he comes into her house and she, she is forced to interact with him as, as an individual. And in the same way that Piedmont is questioning his own motivations and instincts, that very first in, instinct of, you know, the city had it coming, um, Lily begins to question uh, her kindness and her generosity and her own instincts and her own privilege. And the world is absolutely opened by by Piedmont's serendipitous time in her life. It's it's a short-lived time for her, but it it totally changes who she is. It revolutionizes uh, what she understands of the human heart, and it's what ultimately allows her to forgive her husband because she has felt with her own heart what it is to be in love with two different people to to feel it both and to understand wow i can i can want two things at once this doesn't make me a bad person this makes me a person capable of a tremendous amount of love and it makes humans really really complicated and it's also what what does allow her to forgive her parents sort of retroactively as well yeah and it's interesting because where whereas her journey and this is so typical of life because everyone's going to have their own lessons her journey made her less confused and maybe more open to the possibilities. We see Piedmont after being with Lily and being with his friends at this July 4th party that it turns violent and him finally going home to his mother. And he has this really poignant conversation with his mother at the end. And she's basically saying to him, like, look, kid, I'm always confused. I go to bed confused. I wake up confused. So you're just showing sort of the breadth of life that it's not like everyone comes out more enlightened from a tragedy. Some people just go deeper and deeper into the mystery of what it all means anyway. I think that's right. I think it's also, you know, Piedmont and his mother, um, that's one of my favorite conversations that they have. It's a very short chapter at the end of the book, but I, I really... I like returning to it. Uh, I like I like the hard time that she gives him. Um, but I also captured in that conversation. I feel like is my own understanding of. Uh, in some ways, it's you know the forty year old version of me talking to the fifteen year old version of me. Um, part of aging is that I think this is a line from Cormac McCarthy's No Country for Old Men. Um, the time flattens a man and. So that with aging, we kind of flatten out and we become calmer and we become, you know, maybe more open to things, but we become also less passionately searching for ourselves and the right answer and the only answer, which I think that we have in us when we're those, you know, 15 to 25 year old um, 
you know, bundles of energy and confusion. <laughs> and, and so P- Piedmont's mother, when she's talking to him, is basically saying, what, you, what you're describing to me is life. This is your confusion, your angst. This is what it means to be alive. You're going to continue to encounter this kind of unsurety throughout your entire life. It just gets, it gets a little easier. You just have to accept it. Um, and Piedmont is still very much in the throes of not accepting it. And he is absolutely more confused than ever. Um, I think that he's, he's bigger hearted than ever. Um, and he, you know, he, he's returning to his mother. So clearly he's learned something, but there is, I think there's also something cynical that has entered into Piedmont um, as a result of his time sort of quote unquote out in the world that might not have been there. Um, you know, his, his interaction with Lily and with the, the white people at the hospital um, with his friends at, and, and the violence that they choose this all serves to really just leave him very, very confused and I think a little more cynical than he started out. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? So this is, uh, this is from My Face for the World to See, which is a, a very short book. Um, you might even call it a novella by the writer Alfred Hayes. And um, this is a section, it's early on, And I'll just, I'll read it and then we can talk about it or not talk about it. Meanwhile, outside in the absurdly semi-tropical night, the geraniums grew. Snails with their tiny horns inched down the concrete driveways. Banana trees flourished at the edge of parking lots. And there were lovebirds paired in those garages renovated into bachelor quarters in the small canyons where, even now, Bobcats came down to feed and raccoons investigated the garbage pails. I thought of my wife. She was at a distance. The distance was in itself beneficial. I supposed I was again being an uncharitable. She was what she was. I was what I was. That, when you came down to it, was the most intolerable thing of all. If only she weren't now and then what she was always. If she'd let up a little or knock it off a little or hang it out for a good airing once in a little while, God, marriage. No, it wasn't marriage. There wasn't, even on close examination, any other available institution you could substitute. There seemed to be nothing but marriage. When you thought of it, and when you thought of it, my God, was that all there was? That and raising a family, that and earning a living, that and calling the undertaker. Can you tell me a little more about that, um, how you found it or why that speaks to you so much? Sure. So this is, uh, this is one of the New York Review of Books series books, that, uh, so little you know, lost gems that have been republished by the New York Review of Books. Um, and a little while back when I was still living in Chicago, I was just, I, I, wanted, I wanted to read books that weren't brand new in the world and books that I wouldn't ordinarily have heard about. So I, I subscribed to their book club and they send you a different book every month. Um, and I got my hands on just a ton of writers who I'd never even heard of. And Alfred Hayes was one of them. And this was one of the earliest books that I read in the collection. And it just, it blew me away in part for how, how small it is and how big of heart it is. So the, the, 
the narrator of the book who, who we just heard, he's a screenwriter. He's not a particularly successful screenwriter. His marriage is failing. His wife lives in New York. He lives in Hollywood um, where nothing is real except your image. And early in the book, he rescues a woman who's tried to commit suicide by getting drunk and walking into the Pacific. And then he forms this um, relationship and love affair with her. And of course, it's not a happy book. It's a tragedy. And so nothing goes well. Um, but that passage I love and it speaks to me because of the juxtaposition of moving from the outside world, um, you know, looking at these potential bobcats up in the hills and the lovebirds that are pairing and then coming really quickly back into a look at his own life and his marriage. And um, I, I just, I love when writers move in and out of perspective like that. Um, and I'm, whenever I encounter those moments in fiction, I find myself dog-earing them or drawing circles around them or boxes around them. It's a reminder of just how powerful a juxtaposition can be that in not saying something, but in putting two unlike things side by side, you can tell the reader so much about a person's perspective or what's on a person's mind. You know, if I go from talking about a milk carton to talking about exercising to talking about um, not having children, you, you might start to understand the way that my brain works and you might start as a reader to wonder what the connection is between milk exercise and babies is, but, but I'm not going to spell it out for you. It, it's an interactive process. And as a reader, I really enjoy that, what my brain does when I'm reading. And so I hope that I'm doing something similar um, when I'm writing, but I just, I love that passage. Can you read a passage that you wrote? Maybe it was hard or tricky to write or changed a lot from the first draft. So this is, um, this is from the last chapter of my first novel, The Fates Will Find Their Way. Um, and I want to read it because it was difficult to write. I spent more time on it than I spent on probably any other chapter in the book. And it's also the chapter that I wrote um, halfway through the, the writing process, halfway through the novel itself. And it was the chapter that I would I had as a kind of lifeline that every, every other chapter from that halfway section when I wrote it, I was writing in order to get there. And so, so it, it, it's just a very important passage for so many reasons um, to me. So I'm not going to read the whole thing, but this is, uh, this is from the end of the book. We stand and look at the already darkening neighborhood spreading out beyond us, beneath us. The sky has turned from pink to purple, and where the streetlights flicker to life, the air is lavender, effervescent. At the end of the day, it gets no simpler, no less complicated than to admit that this is our life. This is our home. Here is the window and the curtain and the first leaf of fall. This is our bedroom, and there is our pillow, and there just next to it is our wife's pillow. On the other side of the bedroom door is our wife, about to come in, about to join us and swap her day clothes for pajamas. While we hang our ties and jackets, she will pull back the comforter, pull down the sheets. She will turn on both bedside lights, and she will climb into bed, waiting. Tonight we will sleep, perhaps holding one another, perhaps not, hoping somehow, even as we sleep, 
that there will be no telephone call in the middle of the night, hoping simply to wake up, to go about our day, to cover the pool finally tomorrow and admit the end of summer. Um, it's so important for me because I think it's, it's very simple and that might have also been why it was hard to write and I was writing it as a 29 year old and I was trying to capture the, the feeling of late middle-aged men um, and this kind of sentimentality that I'd been watching in my father and in other older men that I knew um, and sort of studying all my life in, in grownups. Um, and I love that passage. I never get to read it because it's at the end. So you don't read the last chapter of a book at a reading. Um, but I also wanted to choose that because I wrote it before I ever encountered Alfred Hayes. And yet I think there's something sort of similar um, if not in the style, definitely in the in the mood and in the sensibility of how how these characters are looking at and approaching life. I mean, in, in my book, there's more of a resignation. And in Alfred Hayes' book, there's more of <laughs> anger um, and perhaps despondency. But they both do that kind of juxtaposing of moving from the outside perspective in and, and getting closer and closer to, to the individual brain and then, um, you know, sort of morphing back out into a larger look at life and really just wanting to wake up tomorrow and be alive and go through our day. Where do you write? I used to be able to write and I used to love to write at coffee shops, no earphones in, nothing like that. Um, I tried recently to go to a coffee shop to write, and I think because they've become offices, like the new office for so many people, there are now just so many more noises and so many phone calls being had by people that it's, it's a lot more distracting than it used to be for me, or, or maybe I have just become more distractible. Um, but what I found is I can still go to a coffee shop, but I have to take earphones now and do white noise. But Mostly I like a small room, um, the lights pretty low, one desk light on and uh, to be by myself and to know that nobody is near because a lot of writing for me is also reading aloud um, what I've written or talking out a paragraph before I write it down. And so I don't like people to be able to hear me uh, because then I'm thinking of them listening to me rather than thinking of the thing that I'm writing. So. I, I really love writing in my own home and preferably in the smallest room possible. And I think part of that comes from writing at boarding school, having a little dorm room where I used to love to turn the lights off um, and just have that one lamp on above my desk and isolate myself as much as possible and engage only in the story that I'm working on. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I run. I'm a runner. Uh, I run. I, I run early in the morning, and I listen to books on tape every morning. Um, I, I've been listening to books on tape since I was a little girl, and it's a nice way for me to stay current with books as they come out. But it's also a way to force myself to appreciate good storytelling. Um, when I'm when I'm reading a book, I'm often trying to take apart their sentences, trying to understand a certain method that's being used, I, I cannot really divorce the writer and me from the reader. And so as much as I love reading, it's not really pleasurable. It's always, it's always sort of in pursuit of 
the craft and I just cannot turn that off. But when I run, I'm, I cannot, you know, it's, it's, in, it's impossible to take notes, which is really great. Um, and I, I find myself just really getting lost in good storytelling. Um, so that's, that's where I go to get away from writing, but it's also, <laughs> uh, it's a bit of a catch 22 because when I start working on something new, um, it's when I'm running that I often start getting ideas for, for the, the book that I'm working on or the story that I'm working on. Um, and, but once that happens, it's sort of out of my hands and I turn off what I'm listening to. And then I try to get home soon enough to start taking notes. <laughs> Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I'm pretty private about my work. Um, when I was still married, I, I did like to read aloud an opening chapter to my husband, um, mostly because he, he was a really good critic and I valued his feedback. He, he did not praise lightly. And so if he liked something that I was wor- working on at the beginning, I, I knew that, that it stood a chance. Um, and, and since then, I've gotten a little bit more private about it. Um, I have a really good friend who's also a writer, Ben Warner, um, his first novel is called Thirst, and he's read everything I've ever written. He uh, He's sort of accidentally become somebody who I trust my work with more than anybody else. He is a very kind and gentle critic, um, and I've read, I think that I've probably read almost everything that he's written now, too. Um, it's it's a really great friendship, and I think part of it is because he's so he's loyal and he's consistent. And if you ask him to read, he gets it back to you quickly, which is really meaningful. It's 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 tough on a writer, at least at least on this writer, to to ask for feedback, and then a month or two or three months go by and you haven't heard and you don't know is this because the person hasn't had time to read it? Great, or is this because the person's read it and really has no idea what to say to me, terrifying. Um, and with editors and agents, you have no idea what their, what their time is like um, and where you stand. And for me, at least, there's a lot of second guessing that, I, that I'm able to do in my head with even 12 hours of <laughs> having sent a manuscript off to an agent or an editor. So 12 days is torture. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty private, but but Ben Warner often sees a very early draft. And, um, and then I, I have to say that my, I do, having just maligned agents and editors, Maria Massey is, is my agent. And I do also, she, she sort of substitutes right now for my ex-husband. I sent her the opening chapter of the book that I'm working on now. And I, I really needed, I think it was just um, something that my brain has grown accustomed to having someone I respect and admire tell me whether or not I'm, I'm headed in the right direction. And she read the first chapter and it, that's all I needed. I didn't need her to read everything that I had, just the first chapter. And, um, you know, it, it clicked with her, which is what I needed to hear. And now I'm kind of on my own until, until I have a finished product. And then probably Ben will see it before anybody else. How have you dealt with rejection? Oh, with great humor. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I've been rejected. Um, I've been having stories rejected since I was 
uh, 18 years old. I think the very first thing that I ever submitted with, with great hubris was to the Paris review. Um, (laughs) And I, for a long time, I saved the rejection slips and I've even got a file at on campus where I teach um, of rejection letters that I've gotten over the years. And I will sometimes take them to my undergraduate and my graduate classes just to show them you will have rejection, you will get rejection. And one thing that you need as a writer is thick skin. And I am lucky enough that I've got something in my DNA or in the way that I was raised so that when I'm told no, all it makes me want to do is uh, prove that person, that institution, that organization wrong. And it makes me want to try harder, do it differently, get it right, and eventually hear yes. And so rejection, luckily, is something that has always fueled me. I mean, devastation, obviously, like immediate devastation, followed by determination is how I handle rejection. And what is your favorite word? I've been thinking about this question. I love the word pithy. I use it. I think that it's probably in every novel. My sister would tell you my favorite word is mule, M-E-W-L, because she thinks it's in every novel I've ever written, um, muling, like a muling animal of some sort. But I love the word pithy. I love how it sounds. I love its meaning. Um, And it's just, I don't know. I've always gravitated towards it and come back to it. I think I learned it kind of late, maybe. And so it stayed with me. Um, Probably second place would be patina. I love the word patina, which makes me think I might have a thing for peas. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Hannah Petard, author of the novel Visible Empire. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.